Acts chapter 8 this morning. I'd like to take a minute with you here and just read. We're just going to read a very, very brief passage here um, as we kind of transition from Acts chapter 7 and and the the, the life of Stephen and the death of Stephen uh, into uh, Acts chapter 8. And and now the the transition, this really is a transition period that that Luke is referring to. In Acts chapter 8, I'd like to begin there in verse 1 and read just the first four verses with you. And this this will be the text I'd like to look at this morning uh, with you. Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, Now Saul was consenting to his death, that is, Stephen. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial, and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. I'd like to ask you this this morning to consider for just a moment what the story of Stephen says about the church in Jerusalem in the early part of Acts, and specifically what it says about the members of the church. You see that this transition, we're moving now into the outward expansion of the gospel. And we're going we're gonna to see in Acts chapter 8 and 9 and 10 how the gospel begins to spread beyond the borders of Jerusalem and truly beyond the borders of Israel into all the world. And yet, in this very brief account, which kind of, it kind of moves us from, it kind of puts an end, it, 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 it completes the story of Stephen And his death that we just looked at last week as he was murdered because of his preaching the gospel. Now we move into this transition time. But there's something very important. I don't don't want to move away from the story of Stephen yet without understanding this. What the church was like. What the members of the church in Jerusalem were like. What characterized them. You see, Peter and John, they faced the first opposition by the Jewish leaders. You remember back in Acts chapter 3, they healed a man who was born lame. And then they were brought in front of the Jewish leaders. And in Acts chapter 4, they were threatened and warned to keep silent about Jesus Christ. Of course, Peter and John refused. And immediately after they left that council, they went out and they began to preach to even greater crowds of people in the temple and all across the city. And then in Acts chapter 5, we saw that all 12 of the apostles were arrested and were brought on trial. Or maybe not brought into trial, but at least brought in front of the council. And the council, not only did they warn them, Did they sternly rebuke them for preaching this gospel of Jesus Christ? But they beat them. And they sent them on their way. And of course, the apostles continued to preach the gospel. Even though they had been beaten, they rejoiced. Because it was an opportunity to receive the same kind of persecution that Christ himself had received. But you know... It doesn't really surprise us, does it? 
I mean, of all the people that we would expect to be witnesses, going out and preaching and telling others about Jesus Christ, of course we would expect that the apostles would do that. They were, after all, the apostles. You know, the famous ones that we've all heard of. Peter, John, and Andrew, and Philip, and Nathaniel, and the other ones. All the ones that we've heard of, right? All these, we would expect them to be out there preaching the gospel. Of course they're fearless. They were with Jesus Christ for three years. If you had been, or if I had been, certainly we would be fearless like them. But we're not them, right? I mean, we would expect them to be going door to door in Jerusalem, you know, handing out little gospel tract scrolls. I don't know if they did or not. I mean, we would expect them to be fearless in evangelizing their opponents. You know, that's what we would expect. And so as we go through Acts, we see them go, oh, this is no surprise. Peter and John standing up and declaring we ought to obey God rather than men. And we rejoice and we say, absolutely. But that's, yeah, Peter, John, you do that. You stand before the court. You stand before the leaders and you tell them we're going to obey God. We're not going to obey you. You do that. I'm going to stay right here. And then the rest of the apostles, sure. Well, then, of course, after that, we see Stephen in Acts chapter 6. Stephen, who was just a lowly deacon in the church, the lowest position in the church. I don't know if you think about it that way. If you're a deacon, you're a servant. That's that's the least position. It really is. And yet we get that turned around usually. We we, we elevate that. We say, well, that that's up here. That's a position of real authority in the church. Now, the the deacons they handed out money to widows. That's what they did. They made sure that the widows had enough to eat. That was their job. That's really exciting. That's Stephen. A man who was spiritually qualified enough to hand out money to widows. And I hope that we can all attain to that. And we say, okay, Stephen. Now, of course, he starts off just handing out money to widows. But what does he eventually do? We see in Acts chapter 6 and in Acts chapter 7 that Stephen was preaching the gospel. Right? He wasn't satisfied with just the ministry of a deacon. He began to preach the gospel and witness and evangelize. And great crowds of people, in fact, he began to heal. And there were incredible miracles that God did through, through Stephen. And the crowds came and they, and they flocked around. And then Stephen faced opposition, right? Of course, again, that really doesn't surprise us too much, right? I mean, we would expect that if a man is going to be a deacon in the church, that certainly he has attained a level of spiritual maturity and spiritual discipline, that he can adequately handle the responsibilities of that ministry. And so it, shouldn't, it wouldn't surprise any of us that the deacons in the church were out preaching the gospel, were standing up for the truth, were facing opposition, in Stephen's case, even going to their death, because of their 
firm stand in preaching the word of God? And we say, well, of course, but they were deacons. They're more spiritual than the average church member. More mature. More committed. More disciplined, right? No one would be surprised to find God calling a church deacon to preach. You shouldn't be surprised because you're looking at one. Maybe so far as we've gone through the book of Acts, you've been able to insulate yourself from this truth. You know, deflect the attention away from yourself. Well, this was Peter and John. This was the 12 apostles. They were out preaching. They were out witnessing. They were out evangelizing. This was the deacons. And, and a truly, I mean, a truly much, you know, probably a, like a, a super deacon, really. You know, I mean, he's not. He's much more than the average deacon, right, Vito? Hold on a minute here. What about the average Christians in the church in Jerusalem? What were they like? We get what the apostles were like. We get what the deacons were like. What about the average Joe who was sitting in a pew on Sunday morning? I don't know if they had pews. I don't think they did. I'm guessing they didn't. They met in people's homes primarily. You know, he, he's sitting there, you know, maybe on the couch. You know, maybe he pulled up a chair. I don't know. I don't know what they, I mean, they had, they had furniture. Listen, they weren't living in caves. They had furniture, okay? So whatever it was. But he's sitting there on Sunday morning, the average Joe who just sits there and he comes and he worships and he listens to the preacher preach and, and he, just, he just works a regular job and he's just an average guy or an average girl just sitting in the church. What were they like? I mean, we read through Scripture and what we see is all of these great people, right? Abraham and Joseph and Moses and David and... Stephen, and we see these people who weren't just average Joes, right? These were really extraordinary people who did extraordinary things. Can I tell you, they're just average people. They were just average Joes sitting in the pews. Now, how do I know that? Because Acts 8, 1 through 4, gives us a really little glimpse, and it's little, you've got to look close, a little glimpse into what the average church member there in Jerusalem was like. The members of the church in Jerusalem, these average Christians, in Acts chapter 8, we see them risking their reputations, risking their standing in the community, and even risking their lives to share the gospel and to stand up for the truth. And they didn't enjoy the kind of freedoms that we've come to expect. You see, they were facing a sudden and violent opposition to the preaching of the gospel. That's what Luke tells us here in verse 1. He says that Saul was present at Stephen's death. In fact, he introduced Saul to us back in the end of chapter 7, in verse 58. He said that they, the, the council, when they heard Stephen, they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. You see, the, when they condemned a man to death, the witnesses who had witnessed 
against him were the first ones to cast the stone. How would you like to be in that courtroom? And you've got to stand there and you've got to witness. And you've got to witness that this guy committed a crime worthy of death. And it's not enough for you to go to the court out for you to go to the jail and watch some doctor inject some something into him or watch him flip a switch in the electric chair. You had to be the one to flip that switch. That's the witness's death. And it says here that they laid their coats, they took their their outer robes off, and they laid them at the feet of Saul, this young man. Saul, who's going to become a very important character here. In chapter 8, verse 1, it says that Saul was giving approval of the sentence of death for Stephen. It wasn't just that Saul happened to be the coat boy. Everybody go throw your coats on him. No, it says he was giving consent. He was giving approval of it. We see here, even though he's, this is the first introduction to this young man, he is influential. He has some sort of influence and power here. We're going to see in verse 3 that Saul, he becomes even more so involved in the persecution of the church. Killing Stephen was only the beginning of the persecution of the church of Jerusalem. And Luke, here in writing the book of Acts, emphasizes that Stephen's trial and death precipitated an outbreak of violence against the church. In chapter 8, verse 1, that expression, at that time, literally is the same day. The same day a great persecution arose. Luke is emphasizing that it was almost instantaneous, that the death of Stephen was just the first part. It wasn't an isolated incident. Stephen was put to death, and immediately there arose persecution. Of course, you see how fast public opinion changes, right? Politicians usually need to, need to pay attention to that because public opinion can change very, very fast. Did here. Because remember, if you go back a couple of chapters, the crowds in chapter 5 were flocking to Peter and John and the apostles because they were healing them, right? They, Peter would walk down a street and people would, 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 would want to just be laid out in his shadow because his shadow passing over them, they would be healed. And so... There, there was this incredible, uh, this incredible buzz about these Christians in Jerusalem that the crowds really loved it. But we see that there's a change, dramatic change. This outbreak of violence, Luke says, the great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And the result of the persecution, Luke says, was they were all scattered. This persecution caused many of the members of the Jerusalem church to flee, escaping to the towns and villages of Judea and Samaria. Now for some reason that Luke doesn't explain, the apostles were not the subject of this persecution. It's possible. And some of the, some of the commentators that I read this week on this passage said that it, it may just be because Peter and James and John and these apostles had performed these miracles. And so they were seen as clearly empowered by God and no one wanted to cross them. So they'll go after the average Joe sitting in the pew, but they'll leave the apostles alone. I don't know if that was it or not, but for whatever the reason, the apostles are still there in Jerusalem, but the church people, the average people in the church were forced to flee, forced to leave their homes, forced to scatter. Now let's not think this was because of fear. Of course, if you go back to 
Mark chapter 13, you read what Jesus said. He told his disciples, if they persecute you, I'm sorry, it wasn't Mark chapter 13. Now that the chapter eludes me now, but Jesus instructing his disciples when he was, when he was sending them out uh, two by two, and he instructed them, he told them, if you face persecution, wipe the dust off your feet and leave the town. Don't stick around. Go, if they don't want to hear the gospel. And so the people here are simply responding to that. The persecution comes, and what do they do? They leave. They, they, they scatter abroad. This was a severe trial. But not everyone. I know it says that all were scattered, but clearly not everyone left Jerusalem because in verse 2, Luke tells us about some of these Christians there in Jerusalem. I want you to see what kind of people they were. These were men who were committed to God. In fact, their commitment to God surpassed their concern for men. Luke says in verse 2, A devout man carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. These faithful men, devout men, mourned for Stephen. Daring to expose themselves by burying him. This was a public act. To go and get his body. To take it and to bury it. And to, to make great lamentation. To cry out loud in mourning. Reminds me of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. In John chapter 19 when they came and they got the body of Jesus Christ. Risking their own selves. By exposing themselves to the authorities as followers of Christ in coming to get his body and take it to burial. And these devout men that Luke doesn't name, that were just average Joes in the church, they came. They got the body of Stephen. They took it. They buried him. And they mourned him. The word devout here is the Greek word eulabes. It's a very rare word in Scripture. But it means taking hold well. It describes the caution and the reverence with which they approached God. This word is only used by Luke in Scripture. And it's only used to refer to men who truly followed and worshipped God. And who had an awe and a reverence for Him. These were not men who had reacted to a powerful preacher. Or to an emotional plea. They didn't sit in the service and hear 55 verses of just as I am and finally break down and come forward. These were men. These were men who loved the Lord. They had true faith in Jesus Christ. Their faith was such that they were willing to risk their lives in order to honor the courage and faithfulness of their brother Stephen. Jewish custom prohibited the people from mourning anyone who had been condemned and put to death. So this act of grief was really a risky proposition for them. Of course, Stephen's trial had been a sham. We saw that. The witnesses were false. They had made up stories. The verdict had not even been rendered when he was murdered. And so these men were probably acting in a form of protest, if you will. Acting... In, to mourn Stephen because they didn't acknowledge that there was a legitimate cause for his being put to death. 
we see here the nature of the believers in Jerusalem who previously had proven themselves faithful to share the gospel. You see, earlier in the chapter, and we didn't, or earlier in the book of Acts, we've, we've seen this, Acts chapter 2, that there were daily those who were being saved as they went house to house and they met. And the church was multiplied and grew. And it didn't grow and multiply because Peter and the apostles were good preachers. It grew and it multiplied because the people in the church were faithful. And because they were faithful to witness, to tell others about what they had heard. And the church grew. These men had proven themselves faithful in that way. But now they were forced to face great persecution. And they continued to be faithful. The persecution that arose did not create in them great strength. It did not create in them a determination to do right. It simply revealed what had been there all along. Their obedience to God in witnessing when they enjoyed the goodwill of the people in Jerusalem had developed the character which would stand up to the rigors of this newly hostile city they were in. You know, it's interesting to see the change in the persecution here. Verse 3 tells us more about this persecution. It says, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church. Up to this point, the church had faced opposition only to their public witness. You know, they'd been preaching in the temple. And they'd stirred up crowds of people and they'd come to the attention of the Jewish leaders. But after Stephen's death, we're told here that Saul wasn't satisfied with simply finding them in public, for, in public forums. But he went house to house. He went out seeking the Christians out. Later in the book of Acts, Paul explains that he had received letters, received written approval from the Jewish council to arrest any of the Christians he found anywhere and to put them into prison. And Paul even admits that there were many Whose, whose death he supervised as a result of the persecution. Paul, or Saul, who later is, we know as Paul. He was attempting to destroy the church completely. The word that Luke uses here to describe Paul's behavior is he says that he made havoc of the church. It's an interesting word. Usually that word is used in the context of a wild beast mercilessly pouncing on its prey. That's the picture that we have of Saul. Almost creeping up. Coming into homes where the church met. Pouncing on those Christians and dragging them away. Indiscriminately arresting them. Men and women, it didn't matter. He went house by house. He sought out the places where they met. And he arrested them. Think about this. No place was safe for Christians. No place in Jerusalem was safe. Because Saul was going house to house. He wasn't satisfied with waiting for the Christians to come out in the open. He was pursuing them. But what's interesting in verse 4... Luke uses the word therefore. And of course, you know that if you know what the word therefore means, it means we need to look back 
at what's happened previous because whatever verse 4 is telling us is a direct result of what has just happened. So the direct result of, of Saul's wreaking havoc in the church, of his dragging away men and women in the church and casting them into prison, the direct result of that is that those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. In response to Paul's encroachment, the church members who evaded capture continued to do what they had done all along. They continued to witness about Christ to anyone who would listen. That's the picture we have in verse 4. Where the advancement of the church happens because of, not in spite of, the persecution they faced. As we spend the remainder of our time this morning, I'd like to draw a couple of conclusions from the actions of the Christians in Jerusalem. I, I said at the beginning, I'd like you to consider just what the Christians in Jerusalem were like. Well, I think these verses give us a little bit of a glimpse of just what these Christians were like, and I think it teaches us something about what it means to be a Christian. There's two things here that I want to draw your attention to, and the first thing is this. I've already said this. Persecution does not change who we are. Persecution does not change who we are. Christ does. Persecution does not change who we are. Christ does. The church members in Jerusalem were described as devout men. Holding so well to God and to his pleasure that they were willing to risk their lives for it. And no amount of persecution would stand in their way. What an example. This isn't the apostles. This isn't whoever these men were. We will never know their names, this side of heaven. Maybe someday when we get to heaven, we can ask Luke, and he'll tell us who these guys were. Who was it? Who were those Christians? Those unnamed ones whose only reference in Scripture is that they were truly devout men who cared enough about God and cared enough about his servant, Stephen, that they were going to risk their own lives to bury him and mourn him. But then, I don't want to wait till heaven. (laughs) I want to pursue that same inner devotion to God today. So that I could stand against any persecution that would come. Refusing to compromise. Refusing to turn back from the path to which God has called me. And I would suggest that you should do the same. These men were Jews. They had been raised from childhood to know and obey God's law. Later, when they heard the truth preached about Jesus Christ, they were so completely and thoroughly convinced that Jesus was the Christ that their entire lives changed. Do you understand that? Their entire lives, from the time they were babies, they had been brought up to believe in the law, to obey the law, to keep the law. And then, one day, They heard there was a man who had fulfilled the law. Who had kept the law perfectly, even as they were unable to. Who had offered himself as a sacrifice for them. So that they didn't have to keep the law. Because he did it for them. 
And he was willing to offer his own righteousness to them. And they were convinced. And their lives radically changed. I fear that too often men and women in the church lack the same devotion to God. Because they have never truly been saved. They've never been transformed by the realization that Jesus Christ did what we could not do. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He died to pay the debt for our sin. Sin, which was so grievous that God was forced to condemn us to hell for eternity to pay for it. Yet Christ paid our eternal punishment in a matter of a few hours on the cross. Then he rose again to conquer sin and death and to provide us with eternal life. And he offers it to us free of charge. Here's the question I have for you, though. How can you truly say you believe the gospel? How can you truly say that you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and that he rose again to give you life? And not be completely changed. How can that be possible? You could say, you know what, I, I believe the truth. I believe what scripture says. But if your life is no different now than it was before you heard about Christ, is it possible that you never truly turned from your sin and trusted completely in the finished work of Christ. And I'm not talking about getting baptized. I'm not talking about taking communion. I'm not talking about going to church. I'm not talking about reading the Bible or being a good person. Those are all good things that do you no good. Because none of those can satisfy the demands of God that He has placed in your life. If you've heard about Jesus Christ, but you're no different than before you heard about Jesus Christ, then maybe what you need this morning is to stop holding on to those good works. Stop holding on to a church. Stop holding on to a a baptism. Stop holding on to whatever your parents believed or whatever uh, you, you heard somewhere, someday, sometime. Stop holding on to whatever it is you're holding on to. And turn. And turn to Christ. Because He's the only one who can satisfy God for you. And He's willing to do it. But I, there's a song that I, I love. And it talks about all of the things that, were in our, that are in our hands. God taking one by one everything that was valuable to me out of my hands. And the song describes a person standing empty-handed before God. Not understanding, confused about how God could remove every valuable thing from his life. 
And it says in the song, Then I reached my hands toward heaven, and he filled them with a store of his own transcendent riches till they could contain no more. Then at last I comprehended with my stupid mind and dull that God could not pour his riches into hands already full. So many times our hands are filled with the things that we think will make us pleasing to God. I can be a good enough person. I can go to church. I've, I've been baptized. I prayed a prayer and said I believed. I did those things and that's what I'm holding on to. And scripture says, no, you have to let go of those things. You have to stop trying to hold on to your own righteousness and cry out to God for his. Jesus Christ finished the work for you. So stop trying to do it for him. Persecution doesn't change who we are. Christ does. But can I tell you, if Christ hasn't changed you, then you're not. If Christ hasn't done a work in you, then you're no different from everyone else who's outside of this church, who wants nothing to do with God, if Christ hasn't changed you. These believers in Jerusalem, they were different. They had been changed by the power of Jesus Christ. They had received the truth of the gospel. And it changed them completely. And so when persecution came, they didn't waver a bit because the change had already taken place. The second thing that we understand here is that persecution doesn't stifle our witness. Fear does. Persecution doesn't stifle our witness. Fear does. I don't know if I have time to read this whole passage, but in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus instructed his disciples. He warned them about fearing persecution. And his words were very, very powerful, and I think they're good for us to note. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 22, Jesus told his disciples, You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore do not fear them. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, and nothing hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will deny also before my Father who is in heaven. 
And Jesus said, listen, you have no reason to be afraid. Men will persecute you. They persecuted me. Men will, will, will call you names. They called me names. They will mock you. They mocked me. They may scourge you. They scourged me. They may beat you. They beat me. They may kill you. They killed me. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of them. The worst they can do is nothing compared to one who would deny his Savior. Jesus warned the disciples, fear is a danger. I would suggest to you that as we look at this church and we realize that they were active in witnessing the truth about Jesus Christ, they were willing to face persecution because they were not afraid of men. But the fear of man is a dangerous thing. Evangelist Billy Sunday used to tell a story about a Christian who got a job in a lumber camp whose workers had a reputation for being ungodly. A friend who heard the man had been hired said to him, if those lumberjacks ever find out you're a Christian, you're going to be in for a hard time. After a year, the man decided to return home for a visit. And while in town, he met the friend who had predicted that he would receive ridicule and persecution from the workers in the lumber camp. Well, asked the friend, did they give you a hard time because you're a Christian? Oh, no, not at all, the man replied. They didn't give me a bit of trouble. They never even found out. The truth is fear, fear of man, can cause us to not witness. Can, that can stifle our witness. But persecution, the persecution doesn't stifle witness. Throughout the history of the church, this principle has been proven time after time that persecution causes the church to grow. That's what we see here in Acts chapter 8. When the persecution came, these Christians, these ones whose lives had been radically changed by the power of Jesus Christ, they didn't stop telling others about Christ. They went everywhere telling people about Christ. In fact, their witness grew. Their, their, their influence expanded. John Polhill said this. He said, they were scattered like one scattered seed. But scattered seed grows. And the irony is that the persecution and scattering of the Christians only led to their further increase. The more that Saul tried to destroy the church, the faster it grew. Because the people scattered and they spread and they began to tell others. Of course, you imagine if you just ran away from your home because you were persecuted for your faith and you went to the next city and they said, hey, what are you doing here? You say, well, I had to leave there because I believe in Jesus Christ. The Savior, the Messiah who died for me and for you. And they wouldn't let me preach it there. Well, there you go. Well, that was pretty, that was pretty hard. You walked in the door and you got a witness about Christ. That's what they were doing. Everywhere they went, telling others about Christ. But see, when we learn to respond in love rather than fear, our testimony grows even greater. Because when we respond by lovingly sharing the gospel in the face of opposition, what a contrast that provides between our love that God has poured into us and the hatred and the darkness of those who oppose the gospel. We need to learn the lessons that Jesus shared uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44. He said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless them who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. You see, if we really love others, 
And we're determined to witness. When opposition comes, the Christ-like response is to love and to pray for those who oppose us. Not fear them. I think that's the example we see in the church. Dennis Fisher tells this story. When I was a freshman in Bible college, he says, I began to be bolder about speaking up for the Lord. Not surprisingly, my new habit created friction with some. Attending a social event with my former high school friends bore this out. One young woman to whom I had witnessed earlier laughed at my concern about where she would spend eternity. Ed, a friend who knew of my faith, said jokingly, Three cheers for the old rugged cross. I felt put down and rejected. But later that evening I was filled with an unexplainable love. Recalling our Lord's command to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, I prayed for Ed, who had mocked the cross of Christ. With my eyes filled with tears, I asked the Lord to save him. About a year later, I got a letter from Ed saying he wanted to get together. When we finally met, he shared how he had wept over his own sinfulness and invited Jesus Christ to be his Savior and Lord. Later, to my surprise, I heard that Ed had become a missionary to Brazil. Understand, if Christ has truly changed you, these believers in Jerusalem, these average Joes sitting in the pew, well, they were anything but average. Not because they were some spiritual giants. We don't even know their names. Luke didn't tell us anything about them other than that they loved the Lord. They were willing to risk their own lives for the truth of the gospel. And the more that they were persecuted, the further they went. They just kept scattering. Everywhere they went, Luke says, they were preaching the word. Has Christ truly changed you? Has he cleansed your sin and made you a new creation? We sang some songs this morning about that. If he has done this for us, then how can we help but tell others about it? The good news of the gospel is the best news you'll hear anywhere. And we need not fear persecution. Instead, we need to get in the habit of spreading the seed of God's word everywhere we go. I'm convinced that these believers were in the habit of telling others about Christ everywhere they went. And so when persecution came, it didn't overcome them. They just went. And they just kept doing what they had always been doing. Telling others about Christ. Spreading the seed of the word. And if you and I would make that devotion to God, that same habit of, of, of spreading the seed of the word of God, then persecution won't overcome us either. It will give us an even greater testimony for Christ. Let's pray.